Welcome, I'm Father Mitch Pack. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition. On this great feast of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I'm actually going to interrupt some of our covering of my other of my book on the wheat and tares by talking about the Assumption. But we still want you to be part of the show. And you can do that by adding your own questions and comments. Uh, you can call in if you're in North America. You can call 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. Or you, if you're outside North America, you can call in, but the number is country code 1 area code 205-271-2980. 1-205-271-2980. The 800 numbers don't work outside North America. You can also do as the nice people here we have here today have done by being part of our studio audience. Or you can also send us your questions and comments by email, writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com. You can also follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. We're glad to have you do that. So let's, let's take a look, first of all, at this feast. There are a number of elements that I think warrant an initial discussion. A number of people will say, well, why was the assumption defined so late in the church's history? It was defined as a dogma by Pope Pius XII in November of 1950, and that's pretty late. And in fact, it's even later than the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which was defined in 1854. So it's important to think about why was it so late, and is there a purpose to that? That's one thing. And then the other element that we have to take a look at is what is the source of our belief in it? And then finally, we ought to take a look at what does it mean for us? This is a holy day of obligation for Catholics to come to Holy Mass and celebrate the Feast of the Assumption. So why is it so important? These are the questions that we'd like to address a bit. First of all, 
let's take a look at the lateness of it. One of the typical points about defining dogma is that definitions normally take place when there is a question or doubt, widespread questioning, widespread doubt. And the church doesn't like to declare dogmas uh, when it's not necessary. Uh, I've, for instance, I've been asked a number of times, I'm not sure it happens so often, I suspect somebody is posing this question, but people say, well, why isn't belief in the Eucharist and transubstantiation, why isn't that in the creed that we say at Mass? The reason is when they composed the creed, there was no problem. There was no problem about the Eucharist for 700 years, 725 years after the creed was written. Nobody doubted it, so it didn't define it. It was only when a deacon doubted the real presence that transubstantiation was defined. So that's why it's not in the creed. The problems come up in history. And I think that applies to both dogmas of the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, each in their own century, in their own time, okay? So let's take a look at that. Why? I'll begin quickly with the Immaculate Conception. What was going on in the Immaculate Conception? And why did it need to be defined then? The key was from various philosophers who were denying that original sin existed. I've talked about this before, but Jean-Jacques Rousseau denied original sin. He believed that people are basically good and if you simply get rid of the church, get rid of the rules of society, then the natural goodness of people will just come forth. And don't think of that as so far-fetched. Is that not partly the background for, of theory for what we see going on in American cities today when a number of local governments refuse to prosecute various criminals, people who rob stores, beat other people up, sometimes even kill them. They seem to let that slide. And the ideas, I guess what comes from Rousseau, at least implicitly. And what we see in reality is that it doesn't make people start to act better. They don't improve their morals. And they don't show more respect for themselves, other people's lives, health, well-being, or property they become more criminal. That effect also occurred 
when this guy Rousseau came into influence of the French Revolution. In 1792, the Rev French Revolution moved over towards Rousseau's influence. And as soon as they did, he was still alive, by the way, as soon as they moved to his influence, what happened? They began a reign of terror, killing, for instance, 200,000 committed Catholics in Western France and many more people who were their political and religious enemies. The, this belief that if you just let people be, they'll get better, didn't work out at all. And you also see the same implication that there's no such thing as original sin, or even sin for that matter, in Karl Marx. And in the face of these philosophies, Pope Pius IX decreed the dogma, de defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, saying, look, all of us are subject to original sin and the disorder that original sins. There is one exception, but you, Rousseau, are not it. And you, Karl Marx, are not the exception. <laughs> you study his life, you see that he's anything but the exception. Rousseau wrote an autobiography, but take a look at Paul Kengor's book on Marx and the Devil. You'll see what a nasty person he was. No, there's one exception. There's only one who's without original sin, and that is the Blessed Virgin Mary. God prevented her from falling into original sin from her conception forward. When she came into being, she was without original sin so that she would be the proper one to bear the Son of God in her womb. Now, let's take a look at the assumption of Our Lady. And why is this late definition of this dogma so much to the point? And I would say it's this. Think about the year I mentioned, November 1950. Just five years earlier, World War II came to an end. That was the war that saw more killing than any war in human history. In fact, the 55 million or so people who died in the war was 50% of the the number of people who died in wars in the previous 1900 years. That's how violent it was. In addition to the war, war is always nasty. This is not, a, you know, it's something you may have to do, but it's never pleasant by any means. It's not something done lightly. It should not, should not be. But in addition to the warfare, there was the shock as the world began to find out the full ramifications of what the Third Reich had done 
in Europe. As Hitler and the National Socialist Workers' Party, that was his party, the Nazis. That's what Nazis stood for, National Socialist Workers' Party. As he, with his nationalistic and socialistic government, took over and brought in racist theories that he had distorted, to be sure, but he had gotten them from Charles Darwin in Darwin's second book, The Descent of Man. In there, Darwin said that inferior races need to be eliminated the way you would an inferior breed of cow, not by killing them, but by not letting them breed. That was, his, that was Darwin. Hitler just moved it forward by identifying his cultural enemies, especially the Jewish people and the gypsies, as undesirable and unfit races, which they're not a separate race from his own. But he defined them that way, and he killed them, murdered 10 million people in the concentration camps, mostly Jewish people. And this grave evil, the, the, the shocking treatment of people became more and more revealed. And the world was in shock. And in fact, you see philosophers reacting to the horrors by being filled with anxiety. In fact, sometimes the French word uh, come, uh, uh, for anxiety, ennui, has come into our own English language. Sometimes you hear the German word for it, angst. It comes from philosophers. Martin Heidegger talked about the necessity of angst, and Jean-Paul Sartre spoke about ennui. And they began to write how life is without meaning, without purpose. There's nothing here. It's all empty. The only thing at all for existence is freedom, but they don't know freedom for what. It's just, I'm free. And that is as much as Jean-Paul Sartre could hold. They did not believe in God. They certainly did not believe in heaven, but they did believe in hell because Sartre, who had lived in France throughout the war, knew that Europe had been turned into hell by the Nazis. And he even said in his play, No Exit, that hell is other people. This is the level of despair and pessimism that inspired plays like Waiting for Godot and other existentialist plays that life was just horrible. This was the mood of Europe, in addition to the shock that now Soviet Union had nuclear weapons and uh, weapons of mass destruction race had begun and the possibility of wiping out the human race through this arms race was looming over the world. In the face of that, Pope Pius XII, says, no, life is not filled with despair. Life is not 
devoid of meaning. Life is filled with hope. And the Blessed Virgin Mary, who was assumed into heaven, she is the sign of hope. In fact, is that not what we say at the end of the Hell Holy Queen, the Salve Regina? when we speak of Our Lady as our life, our sweetness, and our hope. In contrast to the world seeing bitterness, despair, and disgust with fellow humans, Our Lady shows a sweetness of what humanity is supposed to be and can be. And she shows hope that even if, even if, Life is lost for a Christian and we die, whether in persecution, as so many Christians did in the 20th century. Even then, there still is hope because God accepts us into eternal life in heaven. And proclaiming this dogma is a sign of hope to that world and the world of the Cold War and existentialist despair and anxiety and meaninglessness. And this is something that is a lesson for us as well because we see some of these same philosophies. Marxist ideology is being promoted by many people in our society today. Black Lives Matter was very explicitly pro-Marxist. And there are a number of other groups that are Marxist in ideology. And we see that as they get pushed forward, there's not a smile on their face. These are people who are incapable of laughing at themselves. They may laugh at their enemies to make fun of them, and especially to emphasize their own anger through, through uh, laugh, their laughter at somebody. But a good-natured laugh at themselves seems outside the possibility because all they see is justice without mercy. And the justice without mercy to temper it is always going to incite anger and resentment and revenge. And we see this going on. We see so many people who do not find much meaning in life and they turn to drugs. They have certainly disorders and problems psychologically and socially and they use drugs as a way out and they don't see hope for working through their issues and what do we see as a result? That the drug cartels are taking advantage of that and selling fentanyl that kills over 100,000 people a year in our country. If people were going around with guns doing that, we'd be at war. If a, if a foreign power like the drug cartels came in here with machine guns and killed 100,000 people, We'd react, but there's this numbness that comes from the hopelessness of many people. 
and from a belief. Uh, I listened to somebody from a city council out west saying, well, if people want to use drugs on the street and dangerous drugs, we are not there to stop them. They're free to do what they want. That same existentialist freedom and that belief that if you just let people be who they are, they'll be okay. No. Today we celebrate the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary and that she points out a hope beyond anything like drugs, illicit sex, abuse of sex as happens in the trade of human trafficking and pornography, which coincide, we see a hope that would take us far beyond this life. And this is what we celebrate today, that hope that Our Lady was taken up to heaven is a hope that we can share too. We'll take a little break now. I want to come back and talk more about some of the scriptural background and traditional background for this feast. So please stay with us. Welcome back. Now, just what, before we get back to our topic, I want to remind you that the EWTN Family Celebration is coming up. Uh, it'll be on Saturday, August 26th, right here in Birmingham, Alabama, at the Birmingham Jefferson Convention Complex. If you are interested in coming, we still have some room, and you can go to EWTN.com slash family celebration. Or if you prefer, you can call 1-800-447-3986. It's free. We just want to know who's coming so that we can reserve a place for you and make sure there's enough room in the venue for you. So look forward to seeing you. I'll be there. There's a lot. The friars will be there. And some of you sinners, show up. We'll be here in confessions. <laughs> All right, now let's, let's go on to the, the Feast of the Assumption. In regard to the Assumption, there are different kinds of evidence. First of all, there's negative evidence. What do I mean by that? That one of the amazing things is that nobody ever claimed to have any relics of Our Lady's body. No Christians ever did that. Now, that is something odd when you consider how they were really interested in getting first-class relics. They wanted the parts of the saints' bodies. You see this, for instance, in the very ancient report on the martyrdom of St. Polycarp in the uh, 100s 
A.D. I forget the exact year, about 150 or so. And in that, uh, an eyewitness report describes how he was burned to death at the stake. And after the flames went out, they went among the coals and gathered up all the fragments of bone they could and collected them and brought them with them and kept them. And we still have the relics of St. Polycarp. So this is something that they were eager to do. We have the relics of the apostles and the disciples and so on, the, though the Nazis blew up the tomb of St. Luke, so we don't have that anymore. But you see that there um, were all these uh, relics, but never a claim even of the relics of the Blessed Virgin. And so that's a negative kind of witness. On the positive side, there is the series of oral traditions about her assumption. It's not described in the New Testament, the actual assumption, but we have this from the oral tradition. In the Eastern Church, when we see icons of uh, Blessed Mary's door mission. That's what they usually call it in the East, the door mission. It means the falling asleep, koimesis in Greek. And when you see the icon of the koimesis, you see Our Lady laid out in death because the strongest belief is that she had passed away without any pain. She simply fell asleep. That's why it's called door mission. And secondly, the, uh, you, you'll see the 12 apostles around her because in the tradition, she, they were called and summoned to come to her as she knew, when she knew she was dying. And this was either in the, the uh, 30s or the early 40s AD, uh, maybe by 40. Uh, most of the dates would be given that no, no later than that. And... By that point, by the way, she would have been in her 50s or even getting close to 60. So that you see that. But then you always see, uh, besides the apostles, you see two bishops sort of in the background. And those bishops are uh, uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch and St. Dionysius of Athens. Dionysius was... Paul's first convert in Athens. It's mentioned in Acts of the Apostles. And Ignatius of Antioch was the patriarch of the city of Antioch after Peter had left there and gone to Rome. And both of them passed on this tradition. That's why you see them in there. And by the way, in the icon, what you see, that, that's in the bottom half of it, the top half of the icon always portrays our Lord in his glory in heaven. And he's holding the Blessed Mother like a small infant in his arms. It's that reversal. When we have icons of Our Lady, she's holding the child Jesus. But in this event of her assumption, he is holding her. And always on the left arm, because in the Song of Solomon, it says that I rested my head on his left arm. So they always have her portrayed that way. And this is a beautiful idea of the assumption 
uh, as a reunion with Christ, a very important part of this. Can you imagine the joy, the pain that some of you parents have had in losing a child? One of the things that's so important about this scene is that Our Lady's child, her son, receives her into the glory of heaven and does so with great tenderness and love. And this, again, is part of our hope that we will also be reunited with our loved ones who died prematurely, died before us, people that we may have expected to die because they were elderly as we get elderly. But it doesn't cause less pain. But there is a poignant pain about a parent losing a child. And to see that reunion with your own child as, you know, portrayed in a certain way as a a precursor to you being with your loved ones again, with our Lord welcoming his mother into the glory of heaven. Very important. Now, this is something that we see in iconography, but we also see that there are a number of stories. They're later. They're later. They come from the third, fourth, fifth centuries about the assumption of Our Lady, that she had died in Jerusalem and then was taken over to her tomb on the east side of the city on the Mount of Olives. And her tomb is right across the street from the Garden of Gethsemane. And you go right next door to it. And that tomb of Our Lady is the cave. And it was used as a Christian church from the first century until today. Still is a Christian church. It's uh, shared by the Greek Orthodox and the Armenian Orthodox. But the Franciscan, the, the, the Catholic Franciscans, come and celebrate the liturgy of the hours on the Feast of the Assumption there every year. So, you know, all the the ancient Christian communities. And that points to something, that all the churches, whether the churches of the Orient, like the Armenians, the Syriac and Chaldeans and all the others, as well as the Egyptian churches and Ethiopians, and the Catholics, all of us have accepted this doctrine from the uh, beginning of the church. And it became a feast celebrated publicly in the church after the persecutions were over. And we see it on the calendar by the 5th and 6th centuries. So this is also part of that faith. And the reason that this is important, when Pope Pius XII decreed this dogma, when he defined the dogma of the the, uh, Assumption, he polled the bishops and wrote to them before the definition of the dogma and said, do your people believe this? Is this accepted among you? And all the bishops wrote back and said, yes, This is the faith of our people. And the logic is the same logic used by Pope Pius IX, namely, that the Holy Spirit would not allow the majority of the people of God to be deceived. And so 
this was declared a dogma because they believed that the Holy Spirit was speaking to the people. Now, if you notice two things about today's readings, if you get to Mass in the Roman Rite, the, one of the readings today, the first reading, is from the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And we, there we see the woman clothed with the son who is about to give birth. And the devil, the ancient serpent, the dragon, wants to destroy her son. The son who is to rule the nations with an iron rod. That is a reference to Psalm 2, where the Messiah will rule all the nations with an iron rod. And the Son is taken up to heaven. The devil could not destroy him. And it's sort of a very short sweep from the birth to the ascension of Jesus. And it doesn't go into details about his life. It's just saying this is the, the pattern and Satan could not destroy Christ. And in response, St. Michael and his angels defeat Satan. And there's that great line, now is the accuser of my, our brethren cast down. And this is you know, his defeat by St. Michael and his angels. But then he goes after the woman because the enmity between the ancient serpent and the woman goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, when the Lord God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Satan was trying to destroy Our Lady's seed, namely Jesus Christ, and he failed. So then he goes after her. And this is why I emphasize that this feast gives us so much hope in contrast to the movements we have from our society. Many of these are certainly inspired by Satan. Remember how Satan is identified by our Lord Jesus as a liar and the father of lies, and he is called a murderer from the beginning, and that the aspect of deceit and murder are satanic. Doesn't mean that people are possessed. I'm not saying that. But what you do have is people who give in to the evil one's temptation to use lies and murder as their tools. Look at that with the way So many politicians around the world, including our country, promote abortion. This is a satanic deception to solve our world problems by killing babies in the womb, to solve our health problems, our meaning problems by killing the elderly as they're dying, or even young people if they're sick, So, and so many others. And... This is a celebration today of the woman, the Blessed Mother, clothed in the sun with a crown of 12 stars. She 
is going to be there in the battle. And that she, in that passage in Revelation, we're called the children of Our Lady. So as her children, we will side with her for Christ, for goodness, for truth, and for life. And we won't succumb to the temptations that culture would use to deceive us. This is a great encouragement on this feast day, and we all need to rise up with Our Lady in our hymns, joining in Mass today, and in praying the Rosary regularly. Okay, let's now take some of your questions and comments. I'm going to start off with Suzanne, who is in Florida. What can we do for you, Suzanne? Hello, Father Mitch. How <laughs> are I'm you? I'm so happy. I'm good. I'm so happy you're speaking on this topic today. Thank you. Thank you. My question is, in the Catechism, it states that when the course of her earthly life was finished, would you please explain that and also mm -hmm. the term dormition, sure. which we have heard? Is dormition, is this a state other than death? Mm. It's a, a word, dormition is Latin, and the Greek is koimesis. And on one hand, in the ancient world, it, you know, falling asleep is something that is um, used as a euphemism for death. You know, every culture has sometimes euphemisms, sometimes, you know, obnoxious expressions. Um, you know, some people talk about death as kicking the bucket or buying the farm. You know, those are... Those are not pleasant euphemisms. Usually, uh, more pleasant to say, well, they passed away. Uh, but we mean that they died. And by the way, that expression, kick the bucket, that's where people get the idea of a bucket list. Um, you got to do something before you kick the bucket. Might as well get a couple things done from inside the bucket. In the ancient world, they use as a euphemism falling asleep. But it also is used in this case, to mean that Our Lady passed away in tremendous peace. And they, they, one of the descriptions uh, attributed to St. Melito, uh, the passing of the Virgin Mary, uh, says that she just lay down and fell asleep. And, you know, that was where she passed away. And, you know, the church has never defined that she passed away or instead, as some people think, she was assumed without going through death. But it's universal in the ancient uh, texts. All, all the ancient material on the assumption is in complete agreement that she did pass away. She, she fell asleep without any pain. She didn't deserve any pain. But she did imitate Jesus, who also died, and then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, Our Lady uh, passed away and fell asleep without pain, unlike Jesus, uh, who did that to redeem us. She did it as, died without pain as a privilege, and she was assumed. Assumption is a passive form of the verb because she didn't raise herself up to heaven, 
She was raised up by God. God is the one who brought her to himself. And uh, sometimes people, you know, have difficulty with this, especially non-Catholics. But we see in the Bible, for instance, that the prophet Elijah was assumed into heaven on a fiery chariot. And so this is also a precedent for Our Lady being assumed and glorified in heaven. Does that help, Suzanne? Yes, thank you very much, Father Mitch. You're very welcome. Let's now go to Ken in Belleville, Illinois. Ken, what can we do for you? Hi, Father, how you doing? Fine as frog here. Hey, I was wondering, what happened to St. Joseph during the last three years of Christ's life? Okay, here's one of the things. It's not said. We, we see him taking very good care and being a protector in so many ways in the early part of our Lord's life. He's the one that takes uh, Mary and baby Jesus to Egypt and brings them back home to Nazareth. We see that St. Joseph is there uh, at the birth and at the circumcision. And he's there when he's presented in the temple. And also when he's lost in the temple at age 12. And then there's silence. And he's not around. And the church has always understood that, you know, he had been such a protector. There's no way that he would have abandoned Jesus or Our Lady when it came to the crucifixion. Nor would he have failed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He kept the Passover every year. As it says in Luke chapter 2, it was their custom to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. So the, the, the text of the New Testament is silent, but the tradition is that he had passed away sometime between when Jesus was 12 and 30. So in the last three years of Jesus' life, he had already been buried. We don't know uh, what year he died, uh, how old our Lord was or anything. But by the time of the public ministry, Jesus sets off from their home in Nazareth. And, is, uh, and they mention that he's the son of Joseph, the carpenter, but they don't mention him as being around. So we just assume that he's passed away. Okay. All right. Let's take a break. We'll come back in a couple minutes with more of your questions and comments. Please stay with us. just want to invite you to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. We will be speaking with the president of the Catholic University of America, Dr. Peter Kilpatrick. 
And we want to talk about the role and the direction of Catholic higher education. This is going to be a very important thing because a lot of your grandchildren and children will be starting college in the next week or so. So this will be uh, hopefully a useful uh, conversation. All right. So let's, I'm going to go to an email at this point. Uh, start off with um, one from Adeline in my own sweet home, Chicago. Father Mitch, my sister-in-law will turn 100 years old in July. So she already did turn 100 years old. God bless her. And I just found out that she is going blind and is really suffering. Is there a prayer or novena I can say to help her? Yes, there is, a matter of fact. And uh, St. Lucia, St. Lucy, is the patron saint to pray for people who are suffering from blindness. In fact, her name means light. So uh, let me just read this to you, and you can get a copy of this uh, certainly on the Internet, but it's, it's, prayer is this, and we'll pray for her now. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. St. Lucy, whose beautiful name signifies light, by the light of faith which God bestowed upon you, increase and preserve his light in my soul so that I may avoid evil and be zealous in the performance of good works and detest nothing so much as the blindness and darkness of evil and sin. Obtain for me by your intercession with God perfect vision for my bodily eyes and the grace to use them for God's greater honor and glory and the salvation of souls. St. Lucy, virgin and martyr, hear my prayers and obtain my petitions. Amen. So, you know, this is something that is good to keep praying. And since your sister is blind, then for you to read that out loud to her, or you can even make a recording of it for her to be able to hear a number of times. Living to be a hundred is really a special gift, and there's much to learn from your sister, and from you, I assume. You know, this is, uh, I assume that you're not older than she, and that uh, as a younger sister, you're still, you know, in the striking range of that, that age. And with maturity and, and lots of years, there's lots that's been learned. Even if she can't see, she can still serve your family and others by being able to reflect uh, from her experience. Okay. All right, and uh, here's another email that we have. Dear Father Mitch, how is the liturgy of today different from the first liturgies of the early church presided over by the apostles? And how was it expanded and changed over time? Gordon. Well, there, there are a number of, uh, of expansions and changes. First of all, you, would, you, you see when you study 
the background, that there is a lot of similar prayers across all the rites. That's why I urge people, go to the other rites of the Catholic Church and you'll see similar things. For instance, frequently praise and penitential prayer early in the liturgy, followed by a psalm, and then by uh, you know, readings from Scripture. And, uh, and always with a reading from Paul or maybe the Old Testament, but always, always a gospel. That's a pattern. And then we also see that the Christians, at least by the fourth century, were saying the creed as part of the liturgy. And then, again, in all the liturgies, the offertory of the gifts, and then that is followed by a dialogue the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts, lift them up to the Lord. Let's give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and just. With a prayer to the Father and then the holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. That's in all the liturgies. And then comes the consecration, prayers for the church. There's the Our Father and communion. Now, those, that structure is in all the rites. That's how they did it with the uh, apostles. And some of those prayers come from the Jewish Berecha meal that is in the Jewish prayer book to this day. And we, we get it from uh, Jewish background as, as well as the reading of scripture. Uh, this is uh, within a cycle of readings, a lectionary cycle. All of this is a, in, you know, interplay of Jewish background with the New Testament. And um, you may want to take a look at some histories of the liturgy to find out more about the early church. There was expansions in different cultures and different languages, but that's the basic structure that we have from the apostles. All right, we have a question from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? Jackson, Minnesota. Good to have you here. Welcome. And your question? I was wondering what year the Virgin Mary passed away. Yeah. We don't know for sure. There are a couple different dates given. One of them is uh, about 35 or 36 AD, but there's another that is uh, about as late as 39 or 40. So it'd be in that period there. We're not sure exactly. Um, it doesn't come into play in Acts of the Apostles, and um, I suspect that it may, this is my own suspicion, there's no hint in all these episodes, there's no hint of persecution. And persecution of the church in Jerusalem began in 36 AD. That's why I go with a little bit earlier date uh, that it would be before that persecution began. The apostles were free to come and go into Jerusalem. So that, that's another element. And while sometimes people th assume that St. Thomas was in India, before he had gotten to India, he was working in what's today Iraq. 
you know, he was, pro he was preaching the gospel in northern Iraq, Mosul and Babylon, there to the communities. And only later he went down to uh, India. So it wouldn't have been so hard for him to come back. Okay. And then we have another email here from Cynthia uh, in Butte, Montana. Father Mitch, how did people fast in the desert for 40 days without dying of starvation and dehydration? Did they really eat grasshoppers and honey? Well, A, some people did eat grasshoppers and honey. And in fact, you still can find some people who uh, eat various insects. Um, Bill Gates is trying to make a living. Well, he's made a good living already, but he's trying to get us to eat worms. So, um, you know, I, I think I'll pass. But, uh, no, I take that back. I know I'm going to pass on worms. But the, um, the people did eat those. But the fasting, here's what I would use. There have been a few individuals. One of them was Teresa Neumann. There was another uh, named Rose who lived in Massachusetts who only consumed the Eucharist. They didn't eat anything for years, years. And when one of them, uh, Rose, had even just taken a lick of a birthday cake that was for her birthday, she got sick to her stomach. You know, she just only ate, received the Eucharist, and that was it. And she lived for years that way. This is a special gift from God, and that's what I think happened. Well, Today is not only the Feast of the Assumption, but it's also the 42nd anniversary of Mother Angelica starting EWTN. And I pray that the Lord bless you and by Our Lady's intercession, that He would bless you and hear your prayers. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And on this our anniversary, we ask you again, keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. This is the way our Lord inspired Mother Angelica to keep this network going. We depend on our Lord working through you. God bless you and thank you for what you do.